to Sports and Society. This is Brad and got Kyle here. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Doing well. Enjoying uh, some sun here in Kentucky for the first time in a while, it seems like. Man, I don't know about you guys. We've just been dumped on. We Last year was like a record year for rain, and it just has not let up these first few months of this year. Yeah, same. Yeah, I'm, the sun has a massive effect on my mood, so to have it today, I feel pretty good. Well, I hope you uh, you uh, you had a blunt in preparation for this um, this conversation. So uh, I have not because it's, Kentucky seems to be uh, going to be the state that holds out the longest on this. So, oh my! Anyway, that's a little preview of what we're going to get to here in a moment. But what's uh, what's been captivating you this past week, man? So I started watching the Netflix Formula One documentary. Have you seen any of it? Oh, I read a review of this and was uh, quite psyched to check it out, but haven't done so yet. Yeah, so it's it's interesting on several levels. Uh, on the first level, it's very Netflix. It has that, what I'm just referring to for myself is that Netflix, Netflix gloss over it. Hmm. And so these like sweeping shots with dramatic music, and uh, they've just got that method down. They, they crush that. Uh, but what also is interesting about it is that it does offer an inside view that is uh, pretty rare in sports to get as close as they do and that they are literally in the pits uh, throughout every race and throughout the whole weekend and then throughout the week, which also says something about Netflix that they can afford to do that and that Formula One travels around the world every week. You just and the overall production of it is kind of just fascinating from a movie-making perspective. But also what's interesting about it is that Mercedes and Ferrari refuse to be a part of it. So the two top teams that are the only teams going for the championship are not part of the documentary. Uh, and so it has this whole underdog feel to it. And so in that way, on its on the surface, that's interesting to watch. And you get a view of a lot of drivers and pit crew managers and teams that you don't see in weekly coverage of it on BBC or whatever it's being aired on. So that's kind of fun. <clears throat> but then it's also just kind of fascinating that I was thinking of it in terms of if Ferrari and Mercedes are the one percenters, the teams that are not Mercedes and Ferrari kind of take on this identity of being like the 99%, but it's hilarious to think that they're the 99% because their budgets are still like $600 million a year. And so that, that dichotomy is kind of funny. But then the last piece too is it's interesting in the trailer, they play up the, the risk of death that exists in F1 and it does, that's a true thing and all the carnage that goes along with it. Uh, but in actual F1 racing, that's not that apparent. And so kind of when it plays out through the episodes, uh, it's it's kind of much more low-key, just this kind of melodrama. Hmm. Uh, but overall, it's pretty interesting. Um, I've, I've only just started it, so I'll probably definitely finish it. Yeah, I was really intrigued to see it, and especially you know in the mind of these folks like the NFL who have seen such, I think, massive success from their – uh, behind the scenes stuff with HBO and Amazon. I'm, I'm intrigued to know when we're going to see more of that. I, you know, I, I know you and I would love to see an NBA team yeah. do something like that. Um, I think we've seen that. That's one of the reasons I'm 
into cycling is because when I got into watching the sport, there were some teams that were doing some backstage stuff that was really fascinating and added to the understanding and enjoyment of the sport. So it is, it is really interesting. And it's also, F1 is in such an interesting place in terms of, like, I'm not necessarily sure they're suffering for money, but uh, I just don't know many people that care about it. Um, right, yeah. And so something like this could be a huge boon for their long-term options and it's it is interesting particularly in that mindset that is there going to come a point when it becomes necessary for mercedes and um to recognize that they need to get on board with it right and that's that's the interesting piece that they're not a part of it right is that they don't have to be and really what i've pieced together that it comes down to from reading a couple articles about it is that lewis hamilton just said he didn't want to be a part of it and so then the whole Mercedes team is at his will. And so the to call him a diva is not inaccurate in the sense that he really does have that power. Uh, and it's That's just fascinating to me that one person at the top of the sport, and arguably the only reason he's at the top of the sport is because he's in the most expensive car, uh, wields that kind of power. Did you ever watch uh, Top Gear back in the day? I did. I loved that show. I did too, although we as liberals probably should not admit that particularly proudly, but um, it, I still still love it. But their um, their segments when they used to have a star and a reasonably priced car, I always loved it when they had these F1 drivers on, and you could just tell how competitive they were yep. with one another. They did not want to lose to their com- competition on that in that crappy you know ten thousand dollar car yeah they're they're complete freaks they they exist on a plane that's completely different and they've been that you know they're like soccer players in the sense that they are targeted when they're 10 or 11 and so they've been told that they're the best in the world for like 15 20 years of their life and so they just live into this existence that the only people on the planet that live that existence are like the 12 drivers that do that every week. Hmm. And so it's just in, in a fascinating glimpse into the absurdity of sports and that we create these characters and they're real human beings that live this bizarre lifestyle. And yeah, gosh, they hate each other. Uh, well, even teammates, all the teammates hate it. They hate their teammate more than they hate anyone else. Oh my! Well, yeah. it's so interesting too to put on the additional layer of Lewis Hamilton being a person of color in that environment, which is just so interesting. Right, right. But what were you watching this week? Um, well, so I don't know. There are so many different directions I want to go with this, um, and so I don't know which one. But I will lay out a few just to real quick get through. I finished watching uh, Free Solo yesterday, which is just unbelievable um and also something i wish had never been made in some ways um but interestingly to backtrack to yours they did a mri where he essentially has no activation in his amygdala like there's nothing that scares him and i would imagine well, it's the same in some of these uh drivers minds um uh, but then really captivated by the women's soccer, U.S. women's national team filing a lawsuit um, 
for equal pay, which, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast a while ago, uh, but mm-hmm. interesting to see that they've taken lawsuit action now. Um, and then probably the story that most interested me and in, just because I don't know very much about it, but was really interested to dig in was, um, I don't know if you heard about the Santa Anita racetrack. They've shut down racing because they've had 21 horses die. I saw season. that. Yeah. Um, which like seems to me as an outsider, just absolutely unconscionable until you dig in and find it like, well, I mean, it's normally like nine to 10 to 12 every year that do this. So it's really not particularly that much of an increase, although, you know, still significant. Uh, but then there's all kinds of stuff about the sand that they race on and what kinds of stuff people want to race on, even though it's more dangerous than other stuff. And, uh, the old stuff they had that was more safe apparently benefited the European riders or horses. And that was not something that, uh, many people preferred. So it's just such a interesting and odd story in some ways. Horse racing is a world I know nothing about. I, I, you know, I, I'm guilty of only seeing the headlines and being like, Oh, that doesn't look all that great. Uh, and then being from Kentucky, having it be so part of what is presented as our state identity, I feel like I should know more about it, but, uh, that it is as massive of a, um, income source as it is, is, uh, fascinating says that we should probably be paying a little closer to attention to it, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah. You know, it truly does feel like. You know, we've talked about F1 and now horse racing. They truly do feel like the sports of the 1% in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I th- and to the women's national team, I find it really interesting that they're not going through the Players Association, which like I, I was trying to understand it better, but the Players Association already brought their suit forward. Uh, and I guess it wasn't a suit. It was just a collective bargaining agreement that's playing out over the next few years. Hmm. And so the last time when the few players pushed it, the Players Association picked it up and pushed it through. And they're in like a four-year bargaining negotiation. And so the Players Association isn't a part of this one. This is simply individuals that happen to play for the team hmm. that have... Um, filed a class action action sh- suit simply as like citizens but also as employees and so I think that's interesting that it's not through a players association which is something I think we could probably dig in a little bit when we talk about the marijuana in sports as well absolutely but why don't we use that as a segue to get into our main story for this week sure yeah so do you want to talk a little bit about the article that we're referencing yeah. So this is an article by Emily Kaplan on ESPN called uh, Is the NHL the Future of Marijuana and Pro Sports? Why it could be. Uh, And essentially she lays out um, some of the case for why uh, we should care about this, particularly now in terms of how many states have legalized it. And so there's only three or four, maybe five major states that have pro sports that do not allow uh, recreational and medicinal marijuana at this point. Um, and so it's creating all these questions about what does this mean now for us league and what should they do 
about people that in and athletes that uh, partake. Uh, and so she lays out kind of some of the other systems and then lays out the difference in the NHL system. Uh, the big one being that in all of the others, the NFL, the Major League Baseball, and NBA, there is uh, some punishment involved. Usually um, the first round, uh, if you're busted, um, so to speak, you go through some kind of counseling or they refer you somewhere. But starting on the second round, there is money on the line in each each of those leagues. The NHL, however, has chosen a different tact where they will now monitor everyone, which is interesting that they went from not checking everyone to not checking everyone. But uh, if you are caught with what they refer to as a drug of abuse, um, then you will be checked in on to make sure you're doing okay and given resources, but not punished for doing so. Uh, and so she lays out the case for why this may be a potential model for leagues moving forward, that the NBA has already been having these conversations. It's expected to be a big conversation in uh, the NFL moving forward in their next uh, collective bargaining agreement. But uh, just a really interesting uh, conundrum. And I think, you know, we see society moving in one direction. It's interesting to follow sports and see how it uh, follows or does not in that line. Yeah. And maybe even to finish that last point of how sports is driving it, maybe in some mm-hmm. cases as well. And one of the first things that uh, comes to mind is in, is Al Harrington. Are you keeping up with him at all? I'm the not. NBA player? I, I saw something a long time ago about some of this stuff, but not much. Yeah, so he has a marijuana business. Uh, and grows and sells it um, in bulk. And uh, his business is thriving. He's making tons of money off of it. Hmm. Uh, but he has been pushing really hard that uh, it's it's about health uh, more than anything else. And so I think hearing Al Harrington talk about it, and he has several interviews that he's done on YouTube uh, one of which that stands out is, or two that uh, a friend pointed out to me. One is he's with other NBA players, Kenyon Martin and a couple others, and it's uh, on Bleacher Report's YouTube page, and they're smoking while they're doing the interview, which I think is something that can be unpacked to kind of explain why this is such an issue. I think that gets into the kind of stigma of it and the representation of it and how it kind of exists in our public imagination. But then he also does an interview with David Stern, uh, and they sit side by side on Uninterrupted's YouTube page and talk through some of the issues with it. Um, And so in that way, I see a lot of these athletes is kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit. And then what's also interesting is the manner in which they communicate their perspective Mm. is kind of fascinating. And I'm losing the name right now, but the Dallas Cowboys player this week that quit the NFL on Instagram live Mm -hmm. and was smoking while he did it and contrasting that with Al Harrington and how Al Al Harrington is going about it. But there's so much in there. In addition that they mentioned that uh, they think about 85% of the NBA smokes uh, and they said that's top to bottom from management to trainers to players to coaches hmm. that uh, the entire enterprise, about 85% of the NBA, uses marijuana. Um, so in that way, it's like, gosh, if it ever 
came from backstage to front stage, 85% of the NBA publicly engaging yeah, wow. with marijuana, that's that would be crazy. Hmm. But, oh, that's, that raises so many interesting questions for me. And it is, um, there's this quote, this final quote of the thing that I, that kind of brings up for me where, you know, in this article, she references um, Player X and says, he says here at the end, um, who's an NHL player, it comes down to this, we are elite athletes, and as long as it's not performance enhancing or illegal, we know it's best for our own bodies. Um, which is essentially what I'm hearing in that line there from with the NBA players and everything. And I have to say that I, it's not a line that particularly resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we see, we live in a world where people all the time don't know what is good for them. Um, and so there's this line where I think we we know at this point that it's not as harmful as we thought it was, and so we need to move forward with that. But I do think that there's a um, there's a case to be made for a little caution in this in this step in some ways. Um, I don't know. You're making me feel like a conservative here. <laughs> no, I'm with you, and I actually my reference for. I guess withholding a little bit and not like going full blast in support of uh, marijuana being ubiquitous, not just in sports, but also in society is uh, that we just don't have all of the data yet. We don't have all of the science science yet. And I, I haven't heard an argument that counteracts that fact yet and says that, no, we do know everything. I, I haven't heard anyone say that yet. Well, and it's, you know, I am not as educated on this as I am on uh, other things. Um, but my understanding is there potentially, particularly if you are smoking it, there are long-term hazards to your lungs and things like that that are uh, uh, potentially there as well. And so, you know, there's ways to mitigate a lot of that. But it is interesting that, you know, that's a conversation that needs to be had as well, that how do we, you know, it's perhaps no more harmful than tobacco. And so it perhaps should face the same uh, level of regulation and everything is tobacco, but at the same time, uh, does that mean that we should welcome uh, a campaign that that embraces it and makes it exciting? Because we also know that it may have long-term health uh, detriments to it as well. Right. Yeah, and then you think about the I, the thing that comes to my mind is Charles Barkley saying, "I am not a role model." I think that. That whole sentiment is apparent here as well mm-hmm. of uh, how how we feel about Charles Barkley saying that is going to say a lot about what kind of policies we put in place. And so looking at the reach and the salience of an NBA player's promotion, especially as NBA players will probably become involved in the financing and the funding of uh, marijuana corporations, uh, it leads us into a whole different conversation, I think, about how the NBA presents itself as a public good. And when that public good crosses over with what is potentially a public health risk, uh, kind of it just muddies it a little bit. And so I guess I'm with you in that uh, a complete vote of confidence in one way or the other doesn't seem apparent to me just yet. 
Well, and uh, we, I want to stop here and just say that Charles Barkley lost all credibility for a number of different reasons, but that line is so stupid. In my mind, <laughs> like, yes, you can say that all you want, but as soon as you take money to appear on an ad campaign, you right. are essentially knowingly selling yourself as a role model. So I don't want to hear it, Charles. Like, if you said no to all that ad money, fine, but you didn't. Right. And so now uh, you have to deal with it. Yeah. I think when I heard that when I was like eight or nine years old, I didn't know what irony was yet, but I think I was like feeling the overwhelming sense of like, even as an eight year old being like, wait a minute, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I think that's, I, oh, go yeah, ahead. Um, yeah, I was referencing, I meant to say my source for that was Malcolm Gladwell's article in the New Yorker about this issue. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, you know I avoid him like the plague. So of I course, know yeah. I even like hesitated bringing him up, but <laughs> uh, at any rate, he wrote this piece about how we just don't know yet. And uh, what's even more, I guess, significant from his perspective was that the swiftness with which we moved as, or at the federal government moved towards vaping. Uh, is in real contrast with how we're approaching this marijuana issue. And so I think for him, he's really sympathetic to the, um, I guess, the cultural problems within the marijuana issue, primarily the racism issue Mm -hmm. and then the overall stigmatizing of it. Um, But... Just that it's all more complicated than it seems at first glance, I I think, is a good place to start. Well, I think there's good research happening now. And I am, you know, we've seen this update, so now we know, you know, there's much more education out there about the difference between CBD and THC and, you know, what the benefits of each might be. And um, and so I think we're learning all of this and I'm, I'm excited about the possibilities of what may come with it. You know, Virginia just legalized CBD oil. Of course they did it in such a way that is wildly uh, ridiculous and unfair to most people, but you know, what else did we expect in some ways? But um, it is, it'll be interesting to follow it particularly, you know, I was intrigued here that, you know, Within even within the NHL stuff, there's a lot of complexity here that we don't right. really understand what what exactly is going on with a lot of this stuff. And you know, it's always interesting too. You know, I think the more the younger you are, the more you think that science has all the answers, and then at some point you realize that wait a minute, there's a lot of unanswered questions out here, and so. And there's a lot of medications that people are being given for things that work, but people don't know why, what the mechanism is for why it works in that situation. So this would not be the first time that that is the case. But I do think that you and I are probably both, uh, I don't know if it's because of our environmental background or not, but I could always go back to the precautionary principle, and I, I uh, that stands out for me in this world as well. Right. Yeah, and I would point to our our buddy Bruce Hall and comment on the social constructions of marijuana and how words like natural are so close by in any conversation on marijuana. 
And it's, uh, I think that is the ultimate red flag, right? Of like, well, do you, how are you using that word here? Uh, and, but in that, I, I think it's worth pointing out that maybe where I would imagine both of us would commend the NHL is in that light, it appears that the NHL is approaching the conversation with the most nuance and the most sophistication Mm -hmm. and the most, it it seems even like a humble policy what they're doing and that they're really acknowledging that science communication is a part of this. And that if you're writing policy that is aware of the complexities of science communication, then your policies have to be especially nuanced. And it also seems that as is the case in any formation of policy, there's a power dynamic. And it appears in the NHL policy that the players do have quite a bit of voice, if not mm-hmm. more voice than anyone else uh, in the process. And specifically what I'm thinking of in the article is that if you are flagged and test positive, to come into the treatment program is both anonymous and voluntary. Mm-hmm. And it, at least from the language that Emily Kaplan uh, used to describe it, it seems that that's a true thing, <laughs> that you really do have an option to go in or not go in. And that even more so, the side organization that oversees the treatment program is truly there in the sense of, we want to make sure you're healthy and feeling okay. And so what what can we do to help you be healthy and be productive and make a living playing hockey? So in that way, I think both of us would sign off on how the NHL is doing it so far, even in lieu of our apprehension for a kind of writ large policy. I agree. I think the way they've they've framed it, particularly the way that they have done it in such a way that it's not an intention-seeking way to say, hey – you know, we're working with the players. It's kind of just like, uh, we're going to do what's best for the players and we're going to let them, you know, work with them to figure it out. I think it's really compelling. Mm -hmm. Um, additionally, you know, I think we know at this point, even though, um, uh, we know that there are unanswered questions as we've kind of focused on at this point, but we also know that the alternative for this, for a lot of folks is opioids and mm-hmm. that is a much worse solution for almost every case that we've talked about. Uh, and so in some ways, even as we figure this out, we know that this is a, an improvement on the current status quo. And so to see them kind of embrace that and recognize that and be a player's first league, particularly in a league that along with the NFL is probably the hardest on the human body is, uh, is really good to see. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I guess a further commending of it would be that it appears that those that make the most money off of the NHL are not just pumping their players full of whatever they need to keep the margins large. And that the the policies in place seem to say like, yeah, we're getting rich off this, but you have some power here and you have some legitimacy in and of yourself as a human being and the stuff that goes in your body is up to you. Um, but it also acknowledges that we're all in this thing together to some extent too. So uh, I I just find how it was presented in this article. I was like, okay, this is a good first step and maybe a model for the other leagues to follow. 
And I will say, I, the one part that um, I do, that does concern me a little bit, and I have to say, um, this is combined with perhaps the most interesting thing, which uh, I forgot to mention on the top that interested me this past week, was, um, you know, Adam Silver and Bill Simmons had this interesting conversation at the Sloan Sports Conference. Uh, and perhaps the most interesting thing was Adam Silver talking about how miserable all the NBA players he talks to are, how isolated they are, how, um, uh, you know, they live in this world, this bubble that they can't find the fulfillment and satisfaction that they need. Hmm. Um, and that for me is a place where you're ripe to have abuse of substances that give you a little bit of relief. Right. Um, and so I'm hoping that what we really need and what, what I think, uh, I hope we will see moving forward is that this is, this kind of leniency towards these kind of things, these drugs of abuse and other things, is paired with some vastly improved mental health uh, counseling and support systems as well. Because I think that's, for me, the the big concern is that someone will be using this to fill a hole that needs to be filled some other way. And so I'll point back to that interview with Al Harrington and the other NBA guys. And I, I can't think of his name. Is it Matt Barnes? Play for uh, Golden State yeah. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he talks about how that's what he used it for. He says, I, I used it as um, something to mitigate the, the negative effects mentally of playing in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And he goes as far in the interview to say that he smoked before games. Uh, Kenyon Martin says the same thing, that it was both like a calming effect and uh, lessening the pain that comes with just playing 86 games so yeah i agree with you and i I, i'll take that even a little bit further and she points this out in the article too that uh, like where where do we draw the line i guess is the question and it's a tough question to ask and or answer and to think about professional athletes using cocaine for similar reasons Mm -hmm. now you're in a like a completely different conversation and it's like, whoa, okay, <laughs> that that I don't, I don't know what to say about that one, um, which is interesting. And maybe where in the nineteen late nineteen sixties, when counterculture was at a height of how many were feeling about marijuana, is how I probably feel today about cocaine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I read that and I was like, yeah, as soon as you bring that word up, it's like, oh, this is a different level of Mm -hmm. things in some ways. And it is interesting that I was almost surprised when I read that. I would have assumed that many of these leagues would have uh, included it as a performance enhancing thing. Right, right. um, Because I think it has the potential to do that. Um, Right. uh, And I know that, you know, meth and a lot of those amphetamines have been uh, put on that list in that way. And so it's just, it, it's interesting, you know, it is, yeah. What is that line? And it's always when we get to this point in some ways that, you know, in some ways when we as a society say that marijuana is okay, there's nothing that fundamentally separates alcohol, marijuana, tobacco from these, this cocaine, meth, any of these other things out there. Right. Um, and so for us, it's just a, making an arbitrary decision in some ways and saying, no, this one seems like it's okay. But right. you do, I guess, I guess it goes back to that question of always looking for more information that, right. and thinking about what is that threshold for when something is not okay anymore. Right. Yeah. And how a good policy is one that checks power 
and incorporates all the voices and all the stakeholders and asks the tough questions and accepts nuance and complexity. And it seems like that's possible here, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think the NHL is proving that that works. We can come up with something. We're, we're capable. You know, I, uh, I'm really intrigued to kind of go back to the bigger picture question about um, can this lead our national conversation or international conversation on marijuana? I, I'm wondering, like, uh, you know, the NBA, as we know, um, we love, um, and they're perhaps more engaged and open about this conversation than most of the other leagues. You know, I think NHL, I don't know the numbers, but I think it's much smaller uh, viewership and stuff than football and baseball and NBA. And I'm wondering if the NBA, as a league that is so dominated by African-Americans and people of color, if they were the first ones to kind of come out and be okay with this, um, would that actually be a negative on the national scale in terms of it feeds into the stereotype of what marijuana and weed is in a way that is really unhealthy and unsafe for both our national conversation and for people of color in general? Yeah, and that makes me just think about the multidimensional nature of the stigma and how the stigma is so wrapped up in law enforcement Mm -hmm. and the relationship between law enforcement and color and socioeconomics. And gosh, it gets messy quick. Yeah. Um, But maybe I'm blind, but I feel like the NBA could handle it. I have faith in them and, and like I you know it's let's let's be clear like I I don't think the NBA should tell us how to run the world but if the NBA is going to exist and if it is going to be as powerful it is, as it is and if it is going to continue to push culture like it has historically then I'm willing to sign on and say like okay let's let's all consider ourselves stakeholders in this but I'm I'm willing to allow the NBA some space to, you know, put, teach me how to even think about it and to teach our culture how to think about it. I, I have faith that the NBA could do it. Maybe I'm blind though. Yeah, I guess I. So I look at it and I I hope that that's the case. And they could handle it. I know they could handle it. But I also look at this map of the United States that's in this article. Um, about mm-hmm. where THC is legal and all that kind of stuff. And I see this big swatch of the South where it's not legal. And I could see, very easily see the NBA coming out next year and saying, we are perfectly fine with our players using it. And then it becoming a very open thing. And then all of these folks in Alabama and Georgia saying, look, this is all, this is all, this is a, a black person problem. We need to really double down on our opposition to this. And that being, uh, a problem for that community at writ large, which is just, you know, it's not one of those things that I think the NBA should not do it for that reason, but I do worry about what potential backlash you get. Right. Well, and even looking at that map, there's a, I would really want to put an overlay map on top of the map that's in the article that shows where marijuana is illegal and it correlates with the lack of professional sports. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a big gap in the South, of, uh, and there is a major correlation between these states that are not legalizing it and the lack of professional sports. 
it's it's that ubiquity of the case of so many kids that grow up in the South that love the Atlanta Braves and the Chicago Cubs. And they love the Braves because it was the only professional team in any sport within mm-hmm. a thousand miles. And they love the Cubs because the Cubs were syndicated on WGN, uh, which was broadcast nationwide uh, through all of our youth. And so I always find that to be kind of like a... I don't know, just a data point to always consider of like, okay, where where and how are these teams accessing a market and mm-hmm. what kind of market? In this case, it's uh, pretty obvious of who doesn't have access. But, oh, my. Well, we'll see what happens. It'll, it's just starting, you know. It is, but it's moving very quickly, so yeah. I'm intrigued to see where it, I think it'll be in a very different place in two years than it is right now. Yeah, I agree. Well, well you want to talk about what we're going to watch next week? Yeah, let's do it. What's uh, what's on your mind? Well, something I'm going to watch today as soon as we're finished is Australia and India are playing cricket. Oh, and they're in the fourth uh, ODI match that they're playing, so it's kind of the culminating match. And it's been really close, and a lot of people thought Australia was falling off to where they're going to start becoming ir- irrelevant, which is kind of an interesting thing that for you know 150 years it was uh, the UK and Australia at the top, and that India and um, other countries are pushing them out of that top spot is pretty fun to watch just uh, from a historical perspective. Uh, but this match today is even set up for more excitement because Australia is way behind, but they have just enough mathematical opportunity to catch back up. And so it makes for like the most exciting cricket, like the culmination of four days of matches coming down to like 45 minutes or so. And the batsmen are going to be swinging with all they've got. There's going to be a lot of outs. There's going to be a lot of runs. It's going to be really exciting. Um, but I also, I'm I'm following it live while we're recording, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> but even now, what's fun is following cricket on a ticker. Uh, the commentary that pops up, so like the most recent one I'll share, Boomrah to Kawaja out. Superb catch running in from fine leg. Boomrah peppers him with short ball from round the stumps. Kawaja hurried on to the pool, clearly laid on it, and gets a top edge. No one knows what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Makes me happy. Uh, Well, it's... I am intrigued by this idea of Australia falling off because my experience with cricket is that it's about the most unstable of any sports hierarchy in the world in terms of England can be in total destitute shape one year and then the next year be on top of the world mm-hmm. and then vice versa right back again. Yeah. Um, and so that's interesting that that's the case. And then I will share, I don't know if you saw this article because, you know, we love the guardian, um, but they ran a thing about uh, Syrian refugees. They put up a cricket pitch in their one of the refugee camps, and apparently it's a it's been a booming success. Oh wow! No, I didn't see that. I'll definitely check that. Uh, what well, about you? 
I am um, very intrigued to see. You know, it's getting to the height of the season uh, for college basketball, and I'm a huge fan. But um, there are these FBI scandals, uh, that, or scandals that the FBI has uncovered, that are just um, continuing to blossom out of control. And so we saw LSU, which is the potential to be a two seed in the NCAA tournament, um, have their have to suspend their coach after some transcripts of phone conversations came out, which just were ugly in general, but uh, certainly seem to suggest some rules were broken there. Um, and so it's just fascinating to follow what this next week, particular college tournament, um, I, I almost enjoy um, the ACC tournament as much as I do the NCAA. So it'll be fascinating to follow this, particularly as this this rippling effects of this FBI stuff seems to just keep growing and growing. Yeah. And Louisville just got dinged this week too, didn't they? Like well, the I mean, case came down or the rulings came down. Yeah, there's so, so there's a number of things. I mean, so it's hard. Like the NCAA hasn't done anything, so it's still just in the court, federal court mm-hmm. for this other stuff. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's the thing is that this all is going to go through the FBI channels and federal court. And then for the next two or three years, we're still going to be reading repercussions from what the NCAA has found through those transcripts and through that information. And so, I mean, we're going to see Sean Miller is going to be gone. I'd be shocked if what's his name at Kansas, Bill Self is still around. Yeah. Um, I'd be shocked if, you know, half these teams that really try and recruit those five-star guys uh, are there. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Self's name just keeps popping up, doesn't it? And like (laughs) these seemingly harmless ways, but his name just keeps popping up. Well, it is, he's going to be the interesting one because everything I'm reading seems to suggest he's got just enough plausible devi- deniability to be like, oh, I didn't actually tell them to do anything. Right. You know? right. I it wasn't is... in the room when that happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. But but. That being said, the sport is being played as well as it can. I just feel bad. I was really happy on some level. LSU decided to suspend their coach, but they didn't suspend the player that this was relating mm. to. Um, and I think that there's a lot of reasons to do that. A, like if they're going to take away all your wins anyway, you might as well, like if you go ahead and win the national championship, it's not like they can, you know, they came away and took away Louisville's, but it's not like the fans forgot that right. stuff. And so you might as well just let this kid who uh, is, you know, maybe violated some NCAA rules, but, you know, come on. He's just doing right. what everybody else is doing. Right. Uh, let him play. Let him enjoy that last time in college. Right. Yeah. Anyway, it's been a good week, man. Yep. Indeed. All Until right. next week. Until next week, give us a rating and review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you, Kyle. Thanks, man.